Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It is wonderful to be with you. Um, and, uh, you know, we often we say um, in the house of God, but the reality is, is that the people is the house, right? Not a building. If we don't have a building, we're still God's people. Amen? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 to 18. Before we do that, I'd like to pray for us. What I'm going to do is I'm going to um, just pray through a little bit of Psalm 19 um, and ask the Lord to give us a love for his word. Father, as we are about to look at your word, we realize that the law, your law, your word, the whole of it is perfect, that it revives the soul. Would you revive our souls this morning? And Lord, we know that the testimony, your testimonies are sure and that it makes wise the simple. Would you give us wisdom? Those of us who, like myself, are simple, we need your wisdom. Lord, that your precepts are right. May these precepts rejoice our hearts. And Lord, that your commandments are pure. Would they enlighten our eyes this morning? And Lord, your fear is reverence, is clean. Lord, we know it endures forever. Would you allow us to see that this morning? And Lord, your rules are true and they are righteous altogether. Would we see that even when sometimes what is spoken rubs against us the wrong way, that we would see that your words are righteous and they are true altogether. And Lord, would you allow your word to be desired by us more than gold, much fine gold. And may your word be to us sweeter than honey and the honeycomb so that we might be warned and we might receive by your grace reward and so we thank you and we come and ask your blessing upon the word in and through jesus christ our savior amen life is incredibly complex it seems if scientists are learning new things every day but one thing that can never be analyzed is the human soul There are no measurements that you can make on an everlasting spirit. Only our bodies that are composed of material. Why? Well, material things can only measure material things. Right? That's just the reality. But because our soul is unseen, because our soul is unmeasurable, many people actually question its reality. Do we have a soul? People ask. Some want to deny God, and they do so not because it's not plausible, but because they don't want to be accountable to God. They hold that we are just simply matter in motion, that we are held together, this, this bundle, this cacophony of atoms, just this material in motion that simply happened to exist in, well, in a incredibly orderly, complex, and amazing way. In saying this, not only do they deny that human life is intrinsically valuable, that we are made in God's image, hence the reading from Genesis chapter 1 this morning, Um, but they open a door to the ability to destroy life 
Because they have another criterion for what makes life valuable. But when does a human life begin? Psalm 139, as we will read shortly, makes this clear. It's at conception. But we should not expect everybody to believe this. Though many in the non-believing world do, right? Many don't. Satan has always tried to convince humanity that they are not special, that they are not uniquely created in the image of God, And because of this, we should not be surprised that many believe and encourage the destruction of lives that God has created and is forming, whether they're inside or outside of the womb. And so despite our wonderful makeup, images and studies of children in the womb and the incredible testimony of children being born each and every minute of every day, and even some of the earliest we've ever seen surviving is under 22 weeks, many still deny that God is involved in the process of forming a person in the womb. Now you should know right off the bat that this is not going to be a sermon about abortion. Yet, it is important to say that from this passage and others, and even the Sixth Commandment, the Scripture clearly forbids the intentional killing of an unborn child. Our denomination has held this position from the beginning for 50 years this year, is our denomination, and they have been um, unwavering in their commitment to the preservation of life, and in general, uh, the General Assembly in 1978, they publicized that unwavering commitment. You should know that our session holds to this fundamental view that abortion is wrong and seek, we seek as a session, as a church, to uphold the sanctity of life. Now, I do understand that this is a complex topic. And much anger and bitterness within the church have come because of it. We have to understand that we are to make disciples of the nations and not everyone is the same understanding at the same time. And as we talk with others who claim the name of Christ and topics like this come up, we must be gentle and bring the word of God to bear without a hammer. Without a hammer. But with grace and love. Knowing that God is continually conforming us into His image. And so many of Christ's disciples they are having their mind renewed in Christ Jesus. And so our greatest need, if we have discussions on such hard topics as this and such hotly debated topics as this, to do so with prayer, with gentleness, and with meekness guided by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God alone can change the hearts of men and women. You and I can't do it. And so what we do about, what, so the, really the question becomes, what do we do about the people who find themselves, um, women who find themselves unintentionally pregnant and considering abortion? The answer is not to leave them on their own to struggle, but to come alongside of them, to love them, to help them by giving them our time and our resources. We can do this here in Nashua by helping at Real Options. See our deacons. You remember the moment a couple weeks ago. Please see our deacons for more information on how you can take your your belief 
and put it into practice. And the session is going to continue to work with the diaconate to invite the congregation into this and other types of ministries in our community and world. Because we do believe in the preservation of life and the image of God and man and women. I do need to say this, however. If you or anyone you know has had an abortion or even has encouraged someone to get an abortion, the grace of Christ is available. God does not put limits on the sin He forgives. There is no limit in the Scripture on the sin He forgives except those who ultimately reject Him. Jesus made it clear that even hating someone in our hearts is seen by God as murder. So before we cast a stone at those who've had an abortion or whatever, we must realize that we've hated in our hearts and thus are guilty of murder. And so Jesus' person and work provide all the forgiveness we need for any and all the sins we've committed against our holy God. Now I think we also need to remember that some of us may have lost a child during pregnancy. And so a psalm like this might be very painful and bring up questions of why God didn't preserve our children to be with us here in the present age. I cannot answer this question for you. But I pray that God would comfort and bless you with trust and an assured confidence that God is not against you. But He is for you. And He loves you very much. And someday we will see all of His glorious purposes. So then you ask, well, after all this time, what's the sermon going to be about? Well, today we're going to see that, one, God has carefully, intricately, and personally made you and I the way we are. Two, that God has wonderfully and fearfully made us and planted the understanding of this in us. And three, that God has foreordained all of our days even before they were created. And four, that God cannot be fathomed by us, yet he's still with us. Let us look at the word of God here. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13 to verse 18. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it. Very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I wake, and I am still with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. Amen. What we see first is that God has carefully, carefully, intricately, and personally made you and I who we are. The maker is a making. David sees himself as having been made by God. He looks at his own body, how it is masterfully woven together, and sees that it didn't happen by accident. Also, as a man of war who killed lots of men and animals, 
he would have seen the inward parts of the body. Have you ever thought about that when you read this? He, how does he know? How does he say you knitted to my inward parts? Well, he saw them, believe it or not. And so he would have seen tendons. He would have seen organs. He would have seen bones. And he looks at those things and says, wow, can you believe it? He didn't have Google. He didn't have images that he could look at and see the sinews inside of us. He didn't have charts, right? And so what he saw, he saw and said, oh my, God is amazing. And so he knows our bodies are delicate, our inner parts, literally in the Hebrew kidneys. That's how they would refer to that inward part of us. And that was thought to be the seat of your affections and emotions. You ever think about that? The kidneys were thought to be the seat of your affections and your emotions. I don't know what I thought that. But he says that, that was even that was woven together in intricate ways. And so he doesn't deny that we are made by God, but rather he embraces this reality and sees himself as knit together over nine months while he was in his mother's womb. And what is or what should be the right reaction to seeing the intricacies of our body and knowing that it must have been designed? What should our response be? Well, Number two, God has wonderfully and fearfully made us and planted the understanding in us. And what is that? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. Certainly one good reaction is belief in a marvelous creator, right? You see his marvelous creation and it's natural to believe in a creator who would make that. Who designed all of this and even cared for us before we were born. But more than this, we should be filled with gratitude. And we should be filled with thankfulness. When we cut our hand, and you don't just bleed out, right? But when the blood ends up hitting with, getting with the air, right? And I'm not a scientist. You ask my wife, I'm really bad at science and biology. So I, 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 I try to have to do my research before I say things. But, but you know, anyway... But we call it coagulation, right? Or clotting. Now this should amaze us, right? Because basically when you're cut, your blood begins a process where it essentially changes from a liquid to a gel, right? Which we call a blood clot. And it potentially results in the stopping of blood loss from that damaged part of our body. Followed then by a beginning of repair to that. Is this chance? I, I find it hard to believe. The chance. Because how does something like that develop? You bleed and you're dead. It doesn't, there's, no, there's no change. You're just gone. You, you don't have kids after that. There's no progression of... Right? You, you At any rate, this is design. It's not possible to have things in this world without God's marvelous design. So as David, a man of war, was surely injured and cut and saw these sorts of things, how could he not marvel and thank God? 
How can we not marvel and thank God when we wake up day after day, when we see a child come from the womb, when our kids get a broken arm or something like this, right? When we see that and then they heal and we're like, oh, well, it's great. It must just be a natural thing. And it's God at work. Only a master designer, a master builder could design such a creature like me and you. And so we thank God and praise Him for the complexity that God wove together. But who was the one who wove us together, who formed us and made us and created us? Anybody have a guess? The answer is found in John chapter 1, verses 1. Through five or four. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, Jesus, and without Him, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus did it all. Jesus is our creator. And do you know what Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 tells us? That Jesus is holding this universe together. And so next we see that God has foreordained all of our days even before we were created. David continues and praises Yahweh for his workmanship. And as we would look at a Rembrandt, at least me, I know the others like more abstract art. I like Rembrandts because I see a picture of reality there. And marvel at how much detail and how lifelike something like that is, right, and looks. How we, so how much should, more should we marvel at, our, at not only ourselves, as David has says, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but also marvel at others as well. And then when we consider the makeup of the rest of this amazing world, we see that it is wonderful. All God's works are wonderful. So when we stop and think about all that is around us and all that we interact with, especially in this modern age, we should be marveling every day. I mean, the fact that you have a cell phone that can communicate to somebody across the world through little waves that go through the air that are unseeable is beyond, it's, it's beyond my capability even to understand. God made that so all of this could work. And so, God is amazing. And we should worship Him and praise God for it. This is something that should be deep down in our soul. We should know it. And we should know it well. Jesus made us wonderfully and fearfully, or perhaps better said, really awesome. Jesus is a wonderful and awesome creator who makes wonderful and awesome things. For the children out there, younger people, do not say to yourself that you are messed up or whatever. We all have sin, yes. But God has fearfully and wonderfully made you. You do not insult yourself. You do not say terrible things about yourself. 
because, or like whether you think you'd say, oh, I might be ugly or I don't like the way I look or this. You were made by God fearfully. You were made by God wonderfully. And it is not your, it is not your right to say that the way that you are, and for you adults that might have the same struggles, it is not your right to say that you were created right. God made you wonderfully and fearfully. And that is good. And that is good. This is why when we see people who are created, whether with mental or physical issues, that we do not throw them, cast them aside. Because it is God who formed them with their perfections, in air quotes, or their deformities, right? God made them, and he is the judge of what is beautiful and what is not. This is so important. So important for you to believe that truth. Because Satan is after you to convince you that God made a mistake. And he did not. So we see that God cannot be fathomed by us, but yet he's still with us. Now, when we are in the womb prior to recent years, as we were being formed or knit or woven together, no one saw us, right? We were in complete seclusion. All that you saw was the increasing size of the womb, right? And so all that was known is that there's something amazing going on in there. That's all they knew in earlier years. But now with modern technology, you can get high-definition ultrasounds, and you can see how the child forms in the womb. And it's marvelous. Though we can see the steps of growth along the way, however, we still know that God is working and weaving together a masterpiece in that warm but dark womb. Though we can peer in, we can't really see the baby with our own eyes. God alone can see that child. God watches that child. He knits them together. He knit you and me together. God alone has access to that child. God sees the child before it is born, while we truly can't, right? And God alone is in control, and God alone knows us truly and fully from our first day at conception to our final breath. He intricately weaves us together in the, quote, lower parts of the earth. That's what the Hebrew says. And so, idiomatically, we might say, the dark places. And everybody knows that, right? The child is in the dark. They come out with the light, and boo, right? It's a big shock. No wonder they cry, right? In that safe, warm place, and now they come out into this cold world, right? They have to breathe, too. Yahweh is weaving us together into a, in, like a beautiful, intricate tapestry that only he can see. You ever, you ever look at a tapestry and look at the back? You look at the front, it's absolutely gorgeous, and then you look at the back and it's just a mess. The interesting part about it is, is that none of it is like that for us, is it? There's no like backside of humanity that isn't beautiful. When you begin to look at how all of our organs work and everything inside of it, it's like, oh my goodness, it's all beautiful. 
See, Jesus is our creator, and he made each one of us into a beautiful tapestry. Finally, we we, we see here, actually I should say, um, what we see here is God's sovereignty. Okay, And, and, and look at this with me. He says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. This is pretty intense language. The psalmist is making a very bold claim here. But this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the inerrant and infallible word of God. And it is true. He says, every single day of our lives were recorded in God's book before we were born. The Hebrew actually could be rendered like this. This is the way I translated it. In your book, they all were recorded. Days formed when not one of them. It's just really like, boom, right there, right? That's what he's saying. Not one of them. And so, in other words, God is sovereign and in control. There is not a single molecule in this world that is outside of his power, that is outside of his authority. All of your life was planned by God every day, every hour, every minute, every second. Arthur W. Pink wrote this. He said, a God, in quotes, whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity. And so far from being a fit object of worship, merits nothing but contempt. At this, our modern minds bulk. We are unwilling to accept this thought. We read this and say, that's fatalism. That's determinism. If that's the case, then God is not a good God, but he's a monster because then he would have ordained evil. Now, I'm not going to spend time today debating the sovereignty of God, the original free will of man, the bondage of the will under sin, and man's responsibility. But what I want to do is to talk about what the Bible is teaching. Because you know what? At the end of the day, we understand what our what the scripture teaches, that every word of this is God-breathed, theonoustos, the breath of God. And we understand what our confession teaches, that it is the Holy Spirit who alone can make you believe what's true in here. You know, I can't convince you. I can talk about the majesty of it, the beauty of it, that how it applies truthfully in the world. We don't see contradictions when we look at it deeply and all this stuff. But I can't convince you. I can't convince you that it's inherent and infallible. The Holy Spirit alone can. And so, but I do want to look at this. The Bible teaches us that God has planned all things, including the death of Christ, from the foundation of the earth. Acts chapter 2, 23 says that explicitly. If he planned it, then it means he's in control. To say that he planned it, but somehow it could have turned out another way, in other words, that humanity could have made something else happen, is to say that God is not in control. And this is simplistic and reductionistic. How could God ordain the life and death of Christ, but not everything else? See, everybody wants to say, well, yeah, he ordained Jesus. But he didn't ordain that thing. How could he ordain Christ? from before the foundation of the world and yet not ordain all things. You ever thought about one little tiny detail differ? You know, Mary is in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
and you and me and our salvation is lost. Can't happen. Because God planned all. And so, second, Yahweh is not responsible for our sin or evil, 1 John 1, 5. Humanity desired and did it and is responsible and accountable for the sin that we've done. The trouble we have is this. If God planned all things and created the angels and some of them fell, then he created angels and humanity with the capacity to choose evil. So if he did that, then what in the world? So our finite minds struggle with that and we can't resolve it. Right? We say, well, if he's a good God, but he allowed people to sin to do that, but he had to plan it, then he planned it, which means we're not responsible for it. So then it must not be true. Well, yeah, but you're a human. You're human. You didn't create yourself. You didn't sustain yourself. I mean, we, you and I, we can't even figure out like the next day that we live, when we're going to die, right? We, we are not in control of anything. Most of our lives, most of every day, are just completely out of our control. It just runs away like a train wreck from day to day. You ever feel like that? See, third, Yahweh doesn't tempt us to evil. But instead, it is us who wants that evil. From James 1, 13 to 15. We're drawn away by our own lust and enticed. Angels and humanity are responsible for the evil we choose. But the reality is, Romans 1, 18 to 32 says, we want that evil. We choose the evil that, and we want it. But also, God ordained it and isn't accountable for it. Romans chapter 9, verses 17 to 18. See, what we don't like is the evil and the pain that we experience. We hate to see ourselves suffer. We hate to see other people suffer. But what we also don't like is the fact that we're not in charge, you see. We don't like the idea that God is so high above us that we're not in control. So if we can, fi if we can find some loophole, some reason for God not to bring a charge against us, then we think it frees us from our accountability to him. But this is by no means true. Paul in Romans 9, 19 to 24 says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show us his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So, if we are willing to submit to this mystery, because this is a mystery, isn't it? I've been praying 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. And I've been praying it for all of you. That your faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. You see, I think that if we submit to God's mystery, we actually might find ourselves a little more happier and a little more obedient. I have a recommendation Rest in God's sovereignty. Don't try to figure it out. One of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things of the Lord's, the things that are revealed are ours. And I, 
I know my wife is sick and tired of saying this, and eventually you will be sick and tired of hearing me say it. In the Lord of the Rings, the, the, the dwarves mine too deeply into the mines of Moria and unleash the Balrog. Okay? It's just, it's, it's just a, a story. But it, but it, it, it talks about um, it's a, a demon from the ancient world. And that's the storyline. They, they dug too deep into things that were beyond them. When we dig into the sovereignty of God and his mystery, you dig too deep and you unleash things that are demonic because you are trying to enter into the sovereign mind of God. That is not your and my place to enter in. We must trust. You might ask me, well, how did he do it? How are these two ideas held together? My answer, I don't know. I'm not God. Neither are you. But the question is this. Will we have the faith to trust in our creator? Will you walk with me in faith when an increasingly skeptical world looks at us and says, how can you simple-minded people believe that? Will you have the faith to say, with me, our God has revealed it to us and we will trust him though we don't understand. I think maybe if we did what David did and quickly moved out of thoughts that are beyond us, if you notice, he says, he, he, he's, he's doing this and he says, um, how precious are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. So David basically says, time to move on. <laughs> our thoughts, these thoughts are outside of our ability to comprehend and if we understand that, we would do much better. David doesn't see this as a bad thing about God controlling him or something like that, but rather that God loves him. You see what David did with it? He didn't say, oh my goodness, God's sovereign, and so what about all these things? He says, oh my goodness, God's sovereign, and he provided salvation for me. God is with me. He goes from this high and lofty theological concept down to the earth level and says, you're with me. The Hebrew here, by the way, could literally be rendered this way. And it's interesting the way that the ESV rendered it. I mean, remember, the original manuscripts are the inspired word of God. These are translations. They're, they're helpful and they're good. But they sometimes translators kind of struggle a little bit with how to express something to make sure we understand it. But literally, you could say, and to me, how difficult are your thoughts, O God? How numerous they're some. I think what David's actually saying here is your ways are so far above what I can think. And you made all this, that you did all this, that you could hold your divine sovereignty, our human responsibility together in, 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 in you, in Christ, and, and, and that you would call me your child, this is so incredible, I just have to step back. It's, it's become precious to us that God would plan out our days for his glory and for our good even before we were born. You see, it's precious, it's a precious thought. Not a complexity thing like I've got to figure this out and I've got to be able to explain this to my coworker. But it's a precious thought like I'm sitting on this, I'm resting in this because it's God's love towards me that he's formed me and made me the way I am. And so it must become precious to us. 
We are objects of his divine love. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that you are an object of his divine love? But also, that even though he has done all this and planned all this, he is not just a divine clockmaker who wound up the world and let it go. No, God himself became present in it. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We go to sleep, feels like death, and God is with us. When we wake up, oh, there he is. This is our God. We can't put him in a box. We have to submit and rest in the divine mystery of God's sovereignty, of who he is as far above us, completely transcendent, yet imminent with us, right? Transcendent above all, imminent with us. We can submit and rest in his divine mystery of his sovereignty and our apparent free will. And you know that Luther understood that we have the bondage of the will. Once we fell into sin, we only do what we want. We do what we want. We just only do evil. But when you have been redeemed by Christ, you now have a new heart, and now you are able to not sin by his power. There's this thing called the fourfold state of man, right? Able to sin. Not able not to sin. Okay? Able not to sin and then not able to sin. We are in the stage as Christians in the, where we are able to not sin, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we sin every day in thought, word, and deed. But there will come a time when we will not be able to sin. When we look at the face of Jesus Christ and see his beauty and wonder, it will wash away every vestige of idolatry and sinfulness in us. And we will behold his beautiful face. And we will say, I want nothing but you forever. And there will be no lack of love for God. You will love him with all of your being, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself forever. What's really amazing here, as I conclude, about this entire thought is that God, right, is that God would allow evil. And yet, what's more amazing is that he would bear it. You know, we focus on, well, God allowed evil. Well, what about the fact that he took that upon himself and came down? What about the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and he allowed himself to be knit together in his mother's womb and put himself in a place where Mary had to take care of her body? Or else Jesus would have died. You ever thought through that? Of course God is sovereign. He wouldn't allow that. But Jesus allowed himself to be knit together in his mother's womb. God would allow himself to be subjected to the cruelties and the evil in life that we hate. He bore it. Hatred, bitterness, envy, wrath, all against him. Being put upon a cross, bearing the eternal wrath of God for our sake. This is what Jesus did for you and I. This is what's marvelous. 
Not the fact that God's sovereign, well, that's marvelous, of course. But the fact that he would enter this cesspool of humanity and all the evil and not just wipe us all out. That he would be hanging on the cross and they are mocking him and saying, if you're so special, get yourself down. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for I know, they know not what they do. That's marvelous. That's marvelous. If we can't marvel and wonder in the fact that the creator allowed himself to be knit together into this human flesh because of his great love for us, then we've missed the entire gospel. That Jesus would live, die, be buried, rise again, and ascend to heaven where he sends his spirit to dwell in us is beyond our ability to comprehend. And so I conclude with a prayer from Paul. Father, please grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power, through our spirit in the inner person, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, being firmly rooted and established in love, in order that we may be strong enough to grasp together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, in order that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And may you who are able to do beyond all measure more than all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.